Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skiing, serving the Mid-Atlantic region. As usual, we'd like to start off our episodes with a big thank you to everyone, uh, all of our listeners and supporters of Surety Today. Remember, you can listen to any one or all of the prior 90 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere from one of our multiple platforms, the Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com. Uh, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for Surety Today uh, and you'll find us and also on the micro site at suretytoday.net. Um, let's see. We've had almost 11,900 downloads of our podcast to date. So uh, thank you for that. As always, we uh, muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today I'm going to talk about the new federal regulations that mandate the use of project labor agreements um, on all federal government construction projects with an estimated cost of $35 million or more. The new uh, final regs were published in the Federal Register on December 22, 2023 and uh, will become effective on January 22, uh, 2024. The new regs implement an executive order that uh, President Biden issued on February 4th of 2022 titled Use of Project Labor Agreements for Federal Construction Projects. So uh, to explore this subject, we'll discuss the executive order and the new regs. Uh, what are PLAs? What are some typical terms? The history of PLAs in the federal government uh, and why it may matter for the surety and what the surety needs to be aware of. Uh, so let's get started by discussing the executive order. It's number 14063 and the new regulations that were just issued. As I mentioned, uh, on February 4th, 2022, President Biden issued the executive order, which was the impetus for the new regulations. The new regs implementing the order have been interspersed in the Code of Federal Regulations, the CFR, by amending uh, 48 CFR parts 1, 7, 22, 36, and 52. Essentially, the, the new regulations follow the provisions of the order very closely, if not uh, identically. The extensive purpose, as stated in the order in the regs, is for the federal government um, agencies to use project labor agreements in connection with large-scale construction projects to promote economy and efficiency in federal procurement. To accomplish the stated purpose and policy, the order in the regs state that, quote, in awarding any contract in connection with a large-scale construction project or obligating funds pursuant to such a contract, agencies shall require every contractor or subcontractor engaged in construction on the project to agree for that project to negotiate or become a party to a project labor agreement with one or more appropriate labor organizations. 
So this is the, the primary sort of operative provision of the order and the new regulations. And so we needed to do a little unpacking to get a better understanding of what this provision means and what the new regs apply to. First, obviously the provision establishes a mandatory requirement that a project labor agreement, uh, which I'll refer to hereafter as a PLA, uh, be utilized on all applicable projects and that all contractors and subcontractors on that project uh, become a party to the PLA. Second, the regs seem to limit the application to subcontractors engaged in construction on the project, quote unquote, which, which would seem to exclude off-site personnel, engineers, architects, inspectors, uh, that kind of thing, and may exclude supervisors, foremen, that kind of thing. But it remains to be seen how the parties, how the government and the courts will interpret the scope of who must be a party to a PLA under these new regs. Third, the new regs define construction very broadly to include, quote, construction, reconstruction, rehabilitation, modernization, uh, alteration, conversion, extension, repair, or improvement of buildings, structures, highways, or other real property. That's at 48 CFR section 22.502. So that's pretty broad, uh, seems to cover everything. They broke out the thesaurus there. Uh, the regs also apply to PLA requirements, uh, to the, these new requirements to uh, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, the IDIQ contracts, which are a very popular uh, contracting format for the government. Uh, but they apply, if, if you know, IDIQ contracts will have sort of an overall contract and then they'll issue orders out of that contract, which would be smaller than the uh, total contract amount but the, the regs will apply on an order-by-order order basis in the IDIQ situation. Another phrase used in that primary operative provision is, uh, quote, large-scale construction project, unquote. And the regs define this term as a federal construction project within the United States for which the total estimated cost of the construction contract to the federal government is $35 million or more. Thus, the threshold floor on the applicability of the new regs is 35 million, uh, and that's the estimated cost. Another phrase used in the, the primary provision is, quote, project labor agreement, which is defined for purposes of the regs as a pre-hire collective bargaining agreement with one or more labor organizations that establishes the terms and conditions of employment for a specific construction project and is an agreement described in 29 U.S.C. Section 158F, which is uh, part of the National Labor Relations Act authorizing PLAs. Uh, the regs further set forth uh, minimum requirements for the terms of solicitations and uh, applicable covered projects and any PLA entered into on such projects, stating that any PLA uh, reach pursuant to the order of the regs shall, one, bind all contractors and subcontractors on the construction projects through the inclusion of appropriate specifications in all relevant solicitation provisions and contract documents, allow to allow all contractors and subcontractors on a construction project to complete the contract or to compete rather for contracts and subcontracts without regard to whether they are otherwise parties to collective bargaining agreements. In other words, you don't have to be uh, a union shop in order to bid on these uh, projects. Uh, three, contain guarantees against strikes, lockouts, and similar job disruptions. Four, 
set forth effective, prompt, and mutually binding procedures for resolving labor disputes arising during the term of the project labor agreement. Five, provide other mechanisms for labor management cooperation on matters of mutual interest and concern, including productivity, quality of work, safety, and health. And, and then finally, six, to include any additional requirements as the agency deems necessary to satisfy its needs. Now, part of the, uh, the regulations do uh, talk about um, authorizing senior officials within an agency to grant an exception from the PLA requirements for a particular contract by identifying in writing that at least one of the following conditions exist with respect to the specific contract. All right, so the, the first condition that could lead to the granting of uh, an exception to the mandatory PLA requirement is uh, one, requiring a project labor agreement on the project would not advance the federal government's interest in achieving economy and efficiency in federal procurement. Such a finding shall be based on the following factors. Uh, one, the project is of short duration, lacks operational complexity. Two, the project will involve uh, only one craft or trade. Three, the project will involve specialized construction work that is available only uh, from a limited number of contractors or subcontractors. Uh, what's this for? The agency uh, need for the project is of such an unusual and compelling urgency that a PLA would be impractical, impracticable. Uh, or five, the project implicates other similar factors deemed appropriate in regulations or guidance. Um, so the second condition, that's the first condition, if it, you know, if the project would not advance the interests, et cetera, and, you, and you've got those subconditions. So the second uh, condition that could lead to the granting of an exception to the mandatory PLA requirement is that based on inclusive market analysis, requiring a, a PLA on the project would substantially reduce the number of potential bidders so as to frustrate full and open competition. Uh, finally, the third condition that could lead to granting an exception is uh, that requiring a, a project labor agreement on the project would otherwise be inconsistent with statutes, regs, executive orders, presidential memoranda. Okay, so there are some conditions which could lead to exceptions, um, and it remains to be seen, of course, this is all brand new, uh, how liberally or restrictively those exceptions will be utilized. Um, another aspect of the new regs to note is that one provision expressly states that agencies are not precluded from using PLAs for projects that are smaller than the threshold for large construction projects. Thus, agencies are, under these new regs, given the discretion to utilize PLA on all projects, regardless of the uh, amount involved. And really, we'll talk about, it in a few minutes, the history of these, these kinds of uh, PLA issues, and, and you'll see that that's really been the case for, for a while. Uh, the executive order became effective upon its issuance, but was not to apply to solicitations until after the effective date of the final regs, uh, which are issued by the FAR Council, which, as I noted, will be January 22nd. On December 18th of 2023, the uh, Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, issued Memorandum Number M2406, providing guidance to agencies on the uh, reporting and exceptions aspects of, of the regs. So they provided guidance on how to determine whether to apply an exception, that kind of thing. Uh, so let's talk about uh, what are PLAs. I gave you the definition that the regs have. 
A PLA is basically an agreement that is entered into for a specific project between one or more uh, unions and the prime contractor, agreeing that all labor utilized on the project will be union members or follow union rules in a PLA. Thus, all subcontractors on a project who perform labor will be required to agree uh, to be in a signatory of the PLA and to be bound by its terms and conditions, regardless of whether they themselves are union members or not. Uh, ordinarily, if you are a union shop, you will have entered into a collective bargaining agreement with the unions, which govern all projects that your company performs and your labor comes from the union hiring halls or, or union members. On a PLA project, it's recognized that the prime contractor that has ultimately awarded the contract by the federal government and then the subcontractors on them may not be union shops. And so the PLA is required to treat the non-union contractor subcontractor as a union shop for that specific project. It's important to note that if the contractor or subcontractor is a non-union shop, its other contracts and business are not affected by the PLA. The PLA is only binding for that specific project. As mentioned, PLAs are, are authorized under the National Labor Relations Act, uh, which makes special exceptions uh, from other requirements of the NLRA in order to permit employers to enter into pre-hire agreements with labor unions. Uh, such agreements have been used, uh, PLAs have been used on private and governmental jobs, local, state, and federal for years. Indeed, PLAs have been used on federal projects since the 1930s, have been, and they've been expressly recognized in the FAR uh, since 2010, but they've never been mandatory before in the federal government contracting. A PLA generally uh, specifies uh, the, the wages and fringe benefits uh, to be paid on a project, and it usually includes binding procedures to resolve labor disputes. PLAs also typically include provisions uh, requiring contractors to hire workers through the union hiring hall uh, and or employees to become union members after being hired. In a recent PLA entered into between Hensel Phelps and a uh, construction trades council for an airport project, the agreement incorporated, the PLA there incorporated the local collective bargaining agreement, noting that if a subject is covered by the CBA, but not the PLA, the CBA shall prevail. However, if there is a conflict between the CBA and a PLA, the terms and conditions of the PLA shall prevail. Now, to me, any provision that incorporates another CBA uh, in this manner really opens up the PLA to all kinds of terms and conditions that were not expressly stated in the PLA. Anyone agreeing to be bound to the PLA must now review the terms of these incorporated documents, such as the CBA. The, the, the Hensel Phelps PLA also notes that during the term of the PLA, there are to be no strikes, picketing, work stoppages, et cetera, um, for any reason by the union, which of course is something that the regs are also requiring. The Hensel Phelps PLA uh, details procedures for determining its application to off-site fabrication and assembly work and required that such work comply with applicable off-site fabrication or assembly provisions in applicable master local agreements, again, incorporating other documents and terms into the PLA. Shop stewards were required to be appointed, the, the assignment of work to be in accordance with something called the, quote, plan for the settlement of jurisdictional disputes in the construction industry, unquote, it was to be based upon the appropriate, quote, agreements of record, decisions of record, and previously provided local written agreements between or among the unions and established trade practice prevailing in the in the locality. 
I mean, basically that incorporates, this PLA incorporates this entire body of history and documents that relates to who can perform what kind of work. And, you know, in the union world, that becomes very, uh, very detailed. If you're, if you're uh, a carpenter, you better not be picking up a piece of metal or a pipe. If you're a pipe fitter, you better not be picking up a hammer or a piece of wood. And, and it's that kind of thing that, uh, that all this has been incorporated into this Hensel Phelps agreement. But once again, in, incorporating terms and conditions, as I said, the Hensel Phelps PLA includes apprenticeship requirements, the detailed wage requirements, which must be in accordance with the, the current local craft labor agreement as identified uh, in the CBA. Hensel Phelps was required to adopt and agree to be bound by written terms of the legally established trust provisions for fringe benefits in the respective applicable local CBAs. And these things, I mean, they have all kinds of benefit plans, you know, it's in addition to health and retirement, there's education, there's, uh, there's political funds, there's all kinds of stuff that uh, fall under the definition of these fringe benefits. So union dues or, or representation fees, quote unquote, were required to be deducted from the pay of any employee. Uh, free parking was required within a certain distance. And if, if you couldn't get it within that distance, you had to provide free transportation. And uh, oh, by the way, you have to pay them from the time they leave the work site to the time they get to the parking area. Uh, the, the, the Hensel Phelps PLA also spelled out that if an employee reported for work, but no work was available for that employee, that employee was nevertheless entitled to be paid for four hours of time. And if an employee shows up for work and they, and they actually do some work, uh, then they're entitled to a minimum of eight hours of pay per day, even if they work less than eight hours. So those are just some of the union things sneaking into this PLA uh, expressly, but they're also have been incorporated in by reference as well. So, so what kind of problem is this for the surety? How much are we going to be, yeah, how much are we going to be seeing uh, these PLAs? According to the data collected by the uh, OMB, between the years of 2009 and 2021, there was a total of approximately 2,000 eligible contracts. That's projects over 35 million. Based on the data during that time, on average, there were approximately 167 avail eligible awards annually. Uh, additional data from the fiscal year 2019 through 2021, so more recent, shows that the average number of construction awards, including orders against IDIQ contracts, valued at 35 million or more were approximately 119 annually. As a result of the, the order and the new regs, the number of PLAs will increase dramatically and, and will have an impact on a significant number of bonded projects, especially when you consider uh, the prime contractor bond and the lower tier subcontractor bonds on each project. Of course, the prior data uh, does not account for the recent passage of the $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act uh, which was which was passed and will no doubt uh, result in a large increase in projects over 35 million. The White House estimates that the mandate will affect an estimated 262 billion in federal construction contracting for nearly 200,000 workers. In addition, the Biden administration is purportedly pushing state and local governments to require PLAs on federally assisted projects via more than 250 billion worth of federal agency grant programs that give grant applicants favorable treatment if PLAs are required on taxpayer-funded infrastructure projects, and the administration is also reportedly pushing uh, PLA mandates on private projects as well. The bottom line is that I think sureties will start seeing PLAs a lot more frequently in the future unless 
the order and the new regs are derailed in some manner by, you know, a change in leadership at the White House or a change in control of Congress uh, or even, even court action. I would note that the AGC has stated that they consider the mandate to be unconstitutional and plan to file a lawsuit. So let's look quickly, uh, well, I don't know how quickly it is, but <laughs> look at the history of the federal uh, construction and PLAs. As you might imagine, PLAs have been something of a, a political football over time as the powers that be have changed. Uh, in 1992, President George Herbert Walker Bush signed Executive Order 12818, prohibiting federal agencies from exclusively contracting uh, union labor for construction projects and prohibiting the use of PLAs in federal construction projects. Clinton administration uh, came in and rescinded that order in February 93, uh, right after they took office uh, with Executive Order 12836. The Clinton order allowed federal agencies to fund construction projects where contractors required a PLA. Uh, one month after Clinton issued his order, the Supreme Court uh, issued a ruling uh, in this area, the so-called Boston Harbor cleanup case, unanimously held that uh, use of PLAs on project public projects under certain conditions was legal. Supreme Court ruled that if the government was acting in the role of a regulator, it was not able to require PLA uh, use under labor preemption principles. However, if it choose to do so as a market participant without being, it could do so without being preempted by the NLRA. Uh, the court did not address the separate question, which is, which is now going to be pending, of whether government mandated PLAs are lawful under federal or state competitive, uh, competitive bidding laws, because the, the Clinton order uh, was not mandatory; it was it was uh, you know advisory. In '97, uh, President Clinton proposed a new executive order requiring that federal uh, federal agencies must consider the use of PLAs, but there was a, a lot of pushback from the Republicans, and he eventually abandoned that order and instead issued a presidential memorandum, um, which you know, which required that government agencies review projects to determine whether a PLA uh, should be used. But again, not a mandatory requirement. In February of 2001, President George Bush, uh, the son, signed Executive Order 13202, uh, which prohibited the use of PLA mandates for construction projects. Uh, the order stated that construction projects receiving federal funding would not be allowed to impose project labor agreements. Specifically, the order declared that neither the federal government nor any agency acting with federal assistance shall require or prohibit construction contractors to sign union, union agreements as a condition of performing work on federally uh, funded jobs. Uh, in August of 2001, the, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia struck down that executive order, but then that decision was then uh, overturned by the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia of the following year. Uh, let's see, oh, in 2009, February of 2009, President Obama signed Executive Order 13502, which urged federal agencies to consider use of PLAs on federal construction uh, projects costing $25 million or more on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, that order also revoked the Bush orders. Uh, and um, let's see, the, the Obama order states that federal agencies can require PLA if such an agreement will achieve federal goals in economy and efficiency. Surprisingly, to me anyway, uh, President Trump did not rescind uh, the Obama order when he took office. And so it remained in effect until uh, till now. I mean, well, the, the, the Biden order will rescind uh, the, the Obama order. So we've had, from all this time, from 2009 to now, we've had 
the sort of urging the, the federal government to consider uh, using PLAs. And it's funny, if you look at the data, uh, over that entire time, with, with over 2,000 uh, projects that could have been covered by the Obama threshold, uh, only 12 were, 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 used, were, were issued with PLA requirements. So it's clear that the, the government procurement apparatus doesn't want to use PLAs, uh, and, but now they're mandatory, so we'll see what happens. At the state level, uh, as of March uh, 2023, uh, 25 states have laws that either ban um, uh, the use of PLAs or the requirement of PLAs, uh, and those are states, you know, basically Republican states, I think, if you look at it, you know, some of the, the bigger ones are Texas and uh, Florida, of course. And then there are other states uh, that, that have uh, legislation authorizing or encouraging that, notably California, uh, New York, uh, New Jersey. Uh, so, so, you know, the states, of course, are following sort of along the political uh, lines. And there's a lot of opposition, as you might imagine, to this from the ABC, the AGC, and other, uh, <clears throat> other um, you know, construction entities. And uh, they've, you know, they've, uh, they've made comments, they've, they've written letters, uh, and, and they have a lot of support uh, with, within the government itself. Um, the opposition uh, that they produced was shared by more than 50 members of the U.S. Senate and the House. 19 Republican governors and a, and a diverse coalition of construction industry, small business, and taxpayer advocates. Uh, so both the ABC and the AGC did surveys, and, and I think it's interesting. Let's look at that because I think this will this will affect uh, uh, the sureties. So uh, the ABC survey: 98% of its members oppose the mandate. Additionally, 97% said a construction contract that required a PLA would be more expensive compared to a regular contract. 99% said they were less likely to bid on a taxpayer-funded construction contract if the bid specs required the winning firm to use a PLA. 97% of respondents said the government-mandated PLAs decrease economy and efficiency in government contracting. So the AGC survey of its members said 88% believe that a PLA will make it more expensive to, com to complete a project. 78% believe it will make it harder to find workers and subcontractors. 73% believe it will take more time to complete projects. And 82% believe that PLAs will make it harder to subcontract with small disadvantaged businesses. 73% responded, uh, responded that they would not be interested in bidding if there is a government-mandated PLA. So, so federal legislation has been um, has been uh, proposed in in the House and the Senate um, called the Fair and Open Competition Act. It uh, had 79 original co-sponsors in the House and 23 in the Senate. Uh, an ABC-led coalition of organizations uh, support that, uh, and and uh, and so we'll see what happens with that. Of course, you know that that's uh, that's one of those divisive issues that that probably will never see the light of day. Uh, but again, numerous commenters to these proposed rules and these final rules uh, are all are all indicating that they they they're concerned with uh, the effect of this mandate. And and it's funny if you look at the, the research, there have been multiple studies over the years uh, about you know well do PLAs impact efficiency and and economy and all that stuff. And and they they go they go in both directions. Some say they do, some say they don't. So you can point to, to whatever evidence you want. 
So uh, as I said, these new regs become effective on the 22nd of this month. So sureties need to be aware that many bonded uh, federal projects going forward may be subject to PLAs. So, and, and this has, you know, impact, I think, on the underwriting and on the claim side. Uh, on the underwriting, you know, you may wish to uh, understand the PLA terms and the wage rates and, uh, you know, as part of the underwriting process because PLA requirements may impact profit margins and increased risk to its principles and potential future losses. Uh, underwriting may also see an uptick in uh, requests for union-related PLA bonds. So there may be a, there may be a premium plus side to this thing. But uh, I, I talked to a, a consultant who was a former contractor and he told this story. He he bid on a job that was the construction of a steel building with a with an aluminum skin uh, for a government project and a PLA was required. So they uh, they built the project and they erected all the steel and then they went had that subcontractor put the aluminum on and and they were told that they couldn't do it that the aluminum fell under a, a different uh, a different union and they had to get a different subcontractor to install the aluminum skin and that was you know that was going to cause delay so the government <clears throat> to stepped in and descoped the work. Um, uh, so that it could be rebid to a different subcontractor, but they also hit uh, the, the contractor with uh, LDs for for delays because of this issue. So that's the kind of thing, you know. All of these sort of uh, I'll call them hidden. They're 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 there if you look for them. But these hidden costs and and fees and wages and benefits that you got to pay and and who can do the work and who can't and and who gets minimum pay and all those kinds of things. If you're not an experienced union contractor, it's going to really you know, uh, crop up when you're putting your bid together. Are you accounting for all that? Are you allocating for all that? And so that's what underwriting is going to need to make sure their uh, non-union shops are, are are aware of this stuff. On the claim side, sureties will need to become familiar with the terms of, of these PLAs and make sure that they get copies of them right away. Uh, PLAs will impact everything from, the, of course, the wage rates and the work rules to the benefits and the reporting requirements. You know, and as these AB, ABC and AGC surveys suggest, PLAs on projects, you know, are going to impact the available pool of potential completion contractors because non-union contractors may not want to become involved in PLA projects, and that's what the survey certainly seems to suggest. And that's probably more true when you're just talking about completing, you know, some leftover portion of a job with all the traditional sort of, you know, uh, headaches with that and concerns that a contractor might have with that. Now you stick on the PLA requirement, and and of course. The completion costs for tenders, uh, takeovers, financing, all that is likely to be higher. We're already paying very high premiums. And now when you start tacking on uh, union labor, uh, wage rates, and benefits and all that, it's going to end up uh, likely being being a lot more expensive. So with that, uh, we're, we're, we're done for today. I probably will be issuing some uh, blog posts on this issue, and uh, so you'll see some of this in writing. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll keep checking to see if the AGC follows through on its threat to uh, file a lawsuit and what the basis for that might be. So let me uh, open up the line for... The conference is now in talk mode. Okay, so if anybody has any questions or comments, any experience with PLAs that everybody should be aware of, then let us know. My. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, ahead. um, I had a. Oh, go ahead. 
I had a question. Um, is 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 before uh, enforcement? Is it likely that there would be a stay of the, of the regulation if, if there is a lawsuit? Or do you have any sense of that? No, uh, I don't. I would, I would think that there's good grounds for a stay because once you start, yeah. you know, go down the road and start having projects being being solicited as PLA requirements, and then you know you've got this issue come up. You'll have projects that are halfway in between. It'll be a mess. So I think that yeah. there's a good argument to be made that you should stay it right from the beginning. Um, and my guess is they'll be filing something if they're going to do it uh, within the next week or two because they become effective on the, on the as I said, on the 22nd. Right. But there's a whole, there's a whole litany of considerations for nationwide stays that uh, the sure. federal courts have to engage in. And the one they filed, you know, that, that we did the, we did the podcast uh, back in November, December on the, on the new Davis Bacon regs. And and suits were filed in those in those cases, and they've been kind of dragging. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I, it's, yeah, I don't know. There was another comment. Mike, uh, what's the threshold for the new regulations kicking in? How big does contract have to be? It's thirty-five million. Thirty-five million. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Which you know, if you think about a bridge or you know a, a big road project, that's you know that's pretty. It's, it's going to be something that's going to pop up, I think. And then, you know, 35 million, okay, the prime contractors, there's probably only a handful, you know, those contractors going to be doing jobs that big and, and uh, or bigger. And, and they're probably, you know, more sophisticated and, and familiar with PLAs. But the subs, you know, you start getting down into the, the lower tiers and it's going to, you know, that's where you're going to find folks that aren't necessarily sophisticated in these things. Mm -hmm. And you figure uh, is only 12, according to what I've seen, is only 12% of the construction labor force is unionized. So you've got a, you've got 88% that's not. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people that aren't going to have a lot of experience with this. Mike, does that, um, yeah. Hi, it's Wendy. Um, would that mean that you would, your payment, Slash performance bonds would have to incorporate the benefits would become a claim. Yeah, yeah, because the the PLA is is going to be the, you know, the the sort of underlying contract, if you will, is going to be part of the bonded contract. But would it allow the actual benefit, the, the PLA, um, what would you call them, the um, who does the bargaining agreement, to be able to be an actual um, a, appropriate claimant on either versus a benefits bond. Yeah, and we we did a we did a podcast on that. We did some uh, we did some uh, uh, blog posts on unions and union bonds and who can make claims against uh, 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 you know can union or unit benefit funds make claims against payment bonds and it depends on whether it's a Miller Act, a Little Miller Act, and the language of all of that stuff. So. It's going to have to be looked at uh, on a on a case by case basis. I can't remember what the law is, uh, but I, if you go back and look at the, the there's there's a podcast on the union unions and the surety where we talked about it and, and walked through some of the case law on that issue. Uh, I, I I think it's been decided that for wages they do. I don't know about the benefits though. 
I think benefits too, I think it's considered to be part of the of the wages and and I think that those entities are authorized representatives of the of the employees and I think they can make claims. But again, we we look at the look at the prior podcast and blog posts on it. Anything else? Anybody? Well, again, thank you very much for uh, for your time. And um, you know, if you come across anything on this issue, let me know. And I, I, in the recent blog post we've been asking people, please give us any suggestions you have for topics going forward for the for the uh, podcast or blogs. Thanks again, everybody. Take care and happy new year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.